Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us. Uh, This Friday, February the 2nd, is the Feast of the Presentation of Jesus, also known as the Feast of the Purification of Mary and Candlemas, because that is the day that Catholics go to the church and get their candles blessed uh, in preparation for St. Blaise Day uh, on the 3rd of February. But in Quito, Ecuador, and for her devotees around the world, the 2nd of February is the feast day of Our Lady of Good Success. Um, I'm going to talk about that in a bit and how this 400-year-old devotion relates to the two approved Marian apparitions here in the United States and the significance of those messages for us today, Uh, especially in relation to the latest statistics from the United States bishops regarding the newly professed religious, both priests and lay religious. We're going to talk about that. Also, we're going to take a look at the uh, gospel and the epistle from Yesterday's Sunday Mass in the Ordinary Form, the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time, and we're going to take some time to kind of rediscover the roots of Marian devotion in the words of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, my uh, favorite medieval saint and spiritual mentor. So you can stay tuned for all of that. But to begin with, this Friday, 2nd of February, is the Feast of the Presentation and the Purification and the Feast Day of Our Lady of Good Success. Now, Our Lady of Good Success made many prophecies some 400 years ago about uh, events transpiring in the church and the world today. And obviously the the church is in the midst of uh, possibly the greatest, certainly one of the greatest crises of her long history, from mass attendance to vocations to catechesis to even theology. By virtually every measurable standard, the Catholic Church is in decline and has been in decline For decades. Now, you already know this. But what you might not know is that 400 years ago, Our Lady not only prophesied this uh, sad situation in the church, but also gave us the remedy, which is precisely devotion to her, and especially under that title of Our Lady of Good Success. Four centuries ago, on seven separate occasions, the Blessed Virgin appeared to a Spanish conceptionist sister, Venerable Madre Mariana de Jesus Torres, at the Royal Convent of the Immaculate Conception in Quito, Ecuador. In January of uh, 1599, Our Lady commissioned a life-size statue of herself from Mother Mariana, holding the infant Jesus uh, in, in one arm and, and a uh, crozier and keys of the convent in the other to show her authority over the convent. And that statue was begun about a year later by a local sculptor, and was ultimately completed in 1611 by St. Francis and the three archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. And I don't mean to tease you, that's a story for another time. I'm not going to go into that today. But Our Lady also revealed to Mother Mariana many disturbing details about our current situation, uh, beginning in the second half of the 20th century. And, And we don't have time to go into all of it today, but to give you an idea, she said... The sacrament of matrimony will come under attack, especially by iniquitous laws that will facilitate sins against marriage. So, yeah, no kidding. Uh, She said there'll be an almost total and general corruption of customs. Ditto on that. Innocence will almost no longer be found in children nor modesty in women. And if you want proof of that, you need only visit uh, TikTok or, (laughs) on second thought, just take my word for it. Uh, The effects of secular education will be one reason for the lack of priestly and religious vocations. Corrupted priests who will scandalize the Christian faithful 
will incite the hatred of the enemies of the Church to fall upon all priests. The sacred sacrament of holy orders will be ridiculed, oppressed, and despised. This apparent triumph of Satan will bring enormous sufferings to the good pastors of the Church. Furthermore, she says, in this supreme moment of need in the Church, those who should speak will fall silent. You don't need me to tell you that all of these prophecies have been and continue to be fulfilled. They've been fulfilled and they're getting worse. And and by the way, if this is the first you're hearing of these prophecies, I would mention also that Our Lady of Good Success prophesied that she would not become well-known until the end of the 20th century. I first heard about Our Lady of Good Success circa 1998-99, so right in that time frame. And I spent the last 20 years talking about Our Lady of Good Success, uh, pretty much anybody, anywhere people will listen. I mean, all over North America, both the United States and Canada, uh, in South America, in Australia, in Europe, pretty much uh, uh, any place they would have me. Tens of thousands of my DVD documentary on Our Lady of Good Success have been distributed around the world. Uh, thousands more copies of my uh, book on Our Lady of Good Success, thousands, thousands more copies, tens of thousands of more copies of CDs and downloads of a talk that I did that uh, went out through the Augustine Institute's Lighthouse program. Not to mention, the, the, I mean, I've lost count of all the interviews that I've done in Catholic media, uh, including an interview that I did on EWTN just last week. Now, and you can read all about it. Like I said, I wrote a booklet, um, Mary of Good Success and the Restoration of the Church. You can check out the DVD. I produced Our Lady of Good Success, History, Miracles, and Prophecies, which are both available from promultismedia.com. That's P-R-O-M-U-L-T-I-S media.com. Or you can just go to vmpr.org. Right at the top there, you click on Affiliates, and there's all the logos. you find the uh, Pro Multismedia logo there. You just click on it, and it'll take you right to the site. Okay, enough for the commercial. Um, I, I also should mention that I never asked a stipend for these talks. You know, I, like I said, traveled the world, and as long as people were willing to get me there and put me up, I, I would go anywhere. And the reason is simple. Because Our Lady linked the spread of this devotion in our times to the fulfillment of her final prophecy, the only one that we're still awaiting the fulfillment of, and that is a marvelous restoration of the Church. Precisely, in her own words, when almost all will seem lost and paralyzed. So even though our situation and uh, Our Lady's message are very grim, this is a time of great hope. You know, the title Our Lady of Good Success can sound kind of odd to the modern American ear. You know, Our Lady and Success in the same sentence, it sounds like some kind of Catholic version of the health and wealth gospel. But, you know, it's Our Lady of the Big Payoff. That's, that's, that's not what it is. In Spanish, Buen Suceso means good or great event. And the devotion began in Spain, but the official title uh, of the devotion in Quito is La Nuestra Señora del Buen Suceso de la Purificación. That's Our Lady of the Good Success of the Purification. And the good event in the title obviously refers to the Feast of the Purification, or the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple, where he was first offered to God by the hands of the Blessed Virgin, foreshadowing her role as co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. Um, in 2017... The year that I, I, I can't, I, last time I went to Quito, the sisters actually released a letter for sort of general circulation 
Uh, and they said Mary's role as co-redemptrix did not begin at the foot of the cross. But even at this moment, that is the presentation, she already acts in this capacity. Moreover, the offering of her divine son is accompanied with the complete offering of herself, Christ the Redeemer offering himself, the co-redemptrix, the Virgin Mother of God offering Christ, the Most Blessed Virgin offering completely herself. This is the greatest sacrifice ever to take place in the temple. And the sisters see this as a call to pray for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary for vocations to the priesthood and the religious life. I'll tell you why in just a bit. Now, Mary told Mother Mariana, when almost all will seem lost and paralyzed, this will mark the arrival of my hour, when I, in a marvelous way, will dethrone the proud and cursed Satan, trampling him under my feet. And this is an obvious reference to Genesis 3.15, when God said to, the, said to the serpent, I will put enmities between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Uh, this, I, I believe, this, this is a, uh, the, the selfsame triumph of Mary's Immaculate Heart that she promised the children of Fatima, this marvelous restoration. And that triumph and restoration consists primarily in the restoration of the Catholic Church. Mary crushed the serpent's head by her fiat, by agreeing to become the mother of God. Jesus crushed the serpent's head by his sacrifice on the Holy Cross. And so the key to, to crushing the serpent's head today lies in the restoration of the Catholic Church because it is precisely through the sacraments of the Church that those graces won on the Holy Cross are communicated to the world. But without the priesthood, several of those channels of grace are cut off. Hence, the sisters see the good event of the presentation of Jesus, our high priest at the temple, as a call to pray for vocations to the priesthood and religious life. Now, in my little book, Mary of Good Success and the Restoration of the Church, I suggested that the, the good success, the great event, might uh, more dynamically be uh, understood as happy ending. And so I ask you a question that I always ask when I go out and give these talks. What is the happy ending for a Christian? And the obvious answer is heaven, of course. But how often is heaven achieved only after much suffering? A number of years ago, I spoke at uh, Holy Apostles Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. I was invited there by uh, Father Bill McCarthy, God rest his soul. He was still a uh, professor of Marian studies, actively teaching at the seminary. He was an octogenarian, keeping a schedule that would have exhausted me when I was 40. And, and I asked that question, how often is heaven achieved only after much suffering? And his voice came from the back of the room, always, he said. But the thing is that suffering, of course, can be good for us. And it was St. Hilary of Poitiers who said, who lived through the Arian crisis, right? Uh, another great time of crisis in the church. He says it's a prerogative of the church that she's vanquisher when she's persecuted, that she captures our intellects when her doctrines are questioned, that she conquers all at the very moment when she is abandoned by all. And that's no nonsense. All right, we're going to... Uh, come and back and talk about Our Lady of Good Success and how that devotion relates to the unique American devotions of Our Lady of America and Our Lady of Champions. All that when we come back, No Nonsense Back.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about <clears throat> devotion to Our Lady of Good Success and that she promised heavenly consolation in these our days to those who are devoted to her. She prophesied during that epoch, right, the, the days in which we are living right now, there will be great devotion to me, for I am queen of heaven under many invocations. Now, it's, it's likely that you are uh, devoted to Mary already, and perhaps under uh, titles of Our Lady of Lords, or Our Lady of Fatima, or Our Lady of Guadalupe. I would point out that Our Lady, under her title of the Immaculate Conception, is the patroness of the United States. And we have two uniquely American uh, devotions, approved apparitions of Mary. Our Lady of Champion, also known as Our Lady of Good Help, and Our Lady of America. And the Queen of Heaven has given us American lay Catholics a particular mission through these apparitions. First, Our Lady of Champions said that we have to pass on the faith, teach the catechism, she said. And Our Lady of America said that we are to imitate the purity of the Blessed Virgin and the virtues of the Holy Family, number one. And number two, that we are to be to practice devotion to the indwelling presence of the Holy Trinity. In other words, to strive to remain always in a state of grace, because when you're in a state of grace, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit and really the, the Holy Trinity is, is present within you. That indwelling presence, that's what our Lord was talking about when he said the kingdom of God is within you. Now, I mentioned that um, Our Lady Immaculate Virgin Patroness of America. I mean, she's the official patroness of Catholics in the United States. And it is under this invocation of the Immaculate Conception that we are to understand the identity of Our Lady of America. Further, uh, in Ecuador, the Sisters of the Royal Convent are, are, it's the Royal Convent of the Immaculate Conception. So, I, you know, there's a, there's a connection there between these devotions, between Our Lady of Good Success and Our Lady of America. And it includes this common message of a time of crisis in our day that will only be relieved by true devotion to Mary. And that's no nonsense. Um, all right, last week, numbers came in, and this is all connected. <laughs> numbers came in for a survey made public by the U.S. bishops last uh, month on U.S. men and women who professed perpetual vows in religious life uh, last year. So these are the numbers for 2023. <clears throat> According to an article from Catholic World News published in or January 19th of 2024, the USCCB found the typical religious who professed perpetual vows in 2023 is a 36-year-old cradle Catholic who has three or more siblings and who regularly prayed the rosary and took part in Eucharistic adoration before entering religious life. A disproportionately high number attended Catholic schools or were homeschooled. That's not terribly surprising. All right, so and that average age of 36, by the way, it doesn't mean there's an army of 36 years old, uh, 36 year olds. You know, that sets the average with some being younger and some older. But that average age is a year younger than in 2021 when it was 37. And it's a year and that was a year younger than 2020 when it was 38. Uh, so, you know, the, the fact is that, that candidates for the religious life in this country are getting younger, and that can't but be a good thing. All right, 88% of the newly professed religious were raised by a married couple who lived together. 
86% reporting that both parents were Catholic during their childhood. Only 5% were raised by separated or divorced parent, and only 3% by a single parent. The largest percentage of the newly professed, 23%, almost a quarter of them, came from families with five or more siblings, while only 3% had no siblings. 26% of the eldest child in the family, 29% the youngest child. point is that the impact of marriage and family uh, on the newly professed is very evident. Also, education and religious formation were very crucial. Uh, a simple majority, 51%, went to Catholic school. And, and that might seem, not seem like a lot, but that's three times the general Catholic population of adults today. 46% went to Catholic high school, 43% Catholic college. 14% were homeschooled for an average of nine years. And, and that might not sound like a lot, but that's, uh, this was at a time when only 2% of Americans were homeschooled. Okay? So it's, it's obviously a, a factor. 56% participated, pardon me, participated in parish religious education programs as a child. 15% went to uh, one of the World Youth Days. 12% uh, participated in a Franciscan University of Steubenville high school conference. 13% were involved in FOCUS, which is the uh, Fellowship of Catholic University Students. And a meager 8% took part in the National Catholic Youth Conference, which is uh, sponsored by the bishops. All right, 45% took part in youth ministry programs, 35% in young adult ministry programs, 37% served as faith formation teachers, 55% as lectors, 34% were involved in uh, music ministry, and a whopping 83% of the newly professed male religious had been altar servers, as well as 26% of the newly professed women religious. And before entering religious life, a solid majority, 72%, regularly prayed the rosary. And an even higher number, 83%, uh, or 82%, regularly took part in Eucharistic adoration. So the rosary and Eucharistic adoration, why do you think that we're always talking about that? 69% said they had received spiritual direction, and almost half took part in either faith-sharing or Bible study. The Bible, the Rosary, and the Holy Eucharist. I mean, there it is. Uh, let's see, 72% of the newly professed also had gone on retreat before entering religious life. Now, how did they become religious? Well, 45% said they were encouraged by a parish priest to consider the religious life. 45% by a religious. 41% were uh, by a friend, and 8% said that a bishop encouraged them. On the other hand, 13% reported that a bishop, priest, or deacon discouraged them, or religious, discouraged them from entering religious life. Wow. I, I should say that's a priest, deacon, or religious. 26% said their mother encouraged them to consider a religious vocation, and 70% said their mother discouraged them. 23% said their father encouraged them to a considerate vocation. 19% said they were discouraged by their father. 27% said they were discouraged from considering a vocation by some other relative. So that's interesting, isn't it, that people today saying, no, don't do it. And 34% uh, actually have a priest or religion that is a relative. All right, so there's the family. Now, um, you think about these statistics— like I said, the, the average age is 26. Uh, most of them, or 36 rather, 
Most started considering a religious vocation at age 18. And uh, most were cradle Catholics, 90%. Only 10% were converts, mostly around the age of 24. So you think about all these statistics, uh, everything I've shared this about this newly professed crop of religious here in the United States, a country, I might add, of some 71 million Catholics. And you just heard all these numbers, X percent of this and Y percent of that. All the numbers but one, the total number of newly professed U.S. religious. That's all the new religious, uh, whether it's religious lay brothers and sisters or religious priests. And obviously it doesn't include uh, diocesan priests. So all the, all the newly professed religious priests and uh, brothers and sisters combined for 2023, the total number 144, a, uh, a gross of religious professions, if you will. That's actually down from 182 in 2021. So all in all, and, and COVID might have affected these numbers. Pardon me, I almost sneezed. Uh, speaking of COVID, <laughs> uh, that, you know, that may have had uh, something to do with the decline. But the point is that out of o- over 70 million Catholics in this country, less than 150 were professed as religious priests uh, or, or lay brothers and sisters in the last year. And in, in many Western countries, it's even worse than that. And that's why the sisters down in the Royal Convent of the Immaculate Conception in Quito are praying for the intercession of Our Lady of Good Success precisely for vocations to the priesthood and the religious life. You know, I think that's what um, it was religious vocations that Our Lady was talking about uh, back 400 years ago when she said that in our times there would be almost no virgin souls. Also, the average age, while it's getting younger, it's still kind of like pushing 40. But what about the generation coming up, you know, uh, that have been raised on 24-7 media and, and smartphones? Our Lady said innocence would almost no longer be found in uh, children. And, you know, because of, because of smartphones, because of this diabolical rectangle, uh, the average age of a child's, an American child's first um, exposure to hardcore pornography is the age of 11, with many uh, exposed as early as eight or nine. You know, Our, Our Lady of Fatima said that um, more souls go to hell over sins of the flesh than for any other reason. If that was true in 1917, you know, how much more so today? It's also consistent with the Lady of Our, uh, the message of Our Lady of America. She said U.S. Catholics must first and foremost imitate her purity. And, and the, the final apparition of Our Lady of America to Sister Mildred Noisel was December 20th, 1959, coincidentally the day I was born. And who in 1959 could, could have predicted the depths of depravity into which our culture has fallen? Well, Our Lady, that's who. And not just in 1959, but in 1599. She calls upon us to imitate her purity in the virtues of the Holy Family of Nazareth as the cure for a culture drenched, literally drenched, in sexual license and perversion. Our Lady of Good Success described it as as a filthy ocean that touches everything. And I found Our Lady of America's call to imitate the Holy Family and, and to receive graces obtained through her intercession to be absolutely consistent with, with Mary's previous messages to Mother Mariana, 
when she appeared as Our Lady of Good Success and prophesied our current situation four centuries ago. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Our Lady told Mother Mariana in the 1600s that devotion to her in our days would be a great consolation to the faithful. Because, she said, I am Queen of Heaven under many invocations. And I think that's why it's so important uh, for us today to respond to the messages given by Our Lady to the Catholics of the United States, especially now uh, when Catholicism is being continually misrepresented by, you know, you know, public figures by the likes of Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi, uh, certainly their accomplices in the mainstream media. God help us, even the, in the episcopacy. The program that Our Lady of America brings promises the graces to reject the temptations of our time and, and places an urgent emphasis on certain church teachings which are an antidote for the pervasive sins of today. And, you know, I think we would be tempted to think that it was that purity is only about sexual sins, but there's more to it. We'll talk about that and lots more when we come back after the break with No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before the break, I said that uh, Our Lady's call to purity, Our Lady of America's call to imitate her purity and the virtues of the Holy Family, that given today's almost unbridled sexual immorality, uh, that it's tempting to conclude that therein lies the complete focus of her message on purity. But what Our Lady brings is much more than that. Uh, while sexual purity is among what she asks of us, it is that total purity of heart and mind to which she's calling us, that that purity of thought and action and sacramental life that results in the ultimate purity, which is sanctifying grace. And to, to leave this life in that state, that's the happy ending. That's the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. That's the good success. And that's no nonsense. Now, a little later, we are going to um, look at some insights. We're going to continue our Marian theme, looking at the insights of the great medieval saint and doctor of the church, Bernard of Clairvaux. But first, I want to look at the New Testament readings from the fourth Sunday, yesterday's uh, liturgy, the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Uh, and we're going to start with the gospel. We're in cycle B, so that makes it Mark 1, verses 21 through 28. They journeyed to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, Jesus immediately entered the synagogue and began to instruct the people. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. In that synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit, and he shrieked, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. And come out of him. The unclean spirit threw the man into convulsions and with a loud cry emerged from him. The people were all amazed and they began to ask one another, What is this? It must be some new kind of teaching. With authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. His reputation quickly began to spread everywhere throughout the entire region of Galilee. 
thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Well, the synagogue, okay, because the Temple of Jerusalem was too far away for uh, many Jews to travel regularly for worship, many towns had synagogues, which served as both a place of worship and as the school. And back in the days of Ezra, circa 450 BC, a group of 10 Jewish families could uh, found a synagogue. So every Sabbath, every Saturday, the Jewish uh, men would gather and uh, and listen to a rabbi teach from the Holy Scriptures. And, you know, because they didn't have a permanent rabbi, which is, a, which is, say, a teacher, it was customary for the leader of the synagogue to ask visiting teachers to, to address the congregation. Hence, Jesus often spoke in the synagogues of the towns that he visited. Now, he had recently moved, we learn this from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And Capernaum was, uh, that's where Peter lived. It was a thriving uh, community uh, with, of, of commerce and, and as well as sin and decadence and being uh, headquarters for many Roman troops. Uh, pagan influences from all over the empire were, were present, even pervasive there. And so Capernaum offered an ideal place for our good Lord to challenge both the Jews and the Gentiles with the good news of the kingdom. Now, at the synagogue on this Saturday, it says the people were amazed and they began to ask one another, what is this? A new kind of teaching with authority. Because Jewish teachers, as you know, I mean, this is not uncommon today amongst teachers and and, uh, preachers and, uh, you know, Catholic podcasters, for example, to cite some authority <clears throat> to back up their uh, their insights into the scriptures. But Jesus, he, obviously, he doesn't have that need because he's God himself. Being the one who inspired the scriptures, he not only knows what they say, but um, clearly what they mean. And, uh, and he demonstrates, you know, he has this ultimate authority, and he demonstrates that by commanding the unclean spirits to come out of the man, to leave the possessed man just with a word. Because evil spirits, or demons as we call them, are ruled by Satan, but they are not created by him, right? The, 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 the demons are, in fact, the, the, that, that same bunch of fallen angels, that same third of the stars of heaven that fell with Lucifer uh, in his rebellion. And since being cast out of heaven, they have spent their time tempting human beings, <clears throat> and and one of their great tactics, of course, is to get people to believe they don't exist. And so many modern psychologists would dismiss all the biblical accounts of demonic possession as just examples, uh, primitive examples, uh, you know, of, of an attempt to describe certain medical conditions like epilepsy or, or uh, various psychoses. Now, mental illness, you know, uh, can be wrongly diagnosed as demonic possession and vice versa. But clearly in this scripture, it is a hostile outside force that controls this man in the synagogue. And Mark emphasized Jesus, uh, uh, his conflict with the demonic, to show his superiority over the evil spirits. And so he recorded many stories about Jesus driving out demons. And you note that, you know, in comparison to the exorcists of his day, he didn't have to perform any elaborate ceremonies, no no <clears throat> exorcism rituals. All he has to do is say a word to cast them out. 
also, and speaking of disease, um, Satan can be involved in that too. I mean, obviously not all diseases come from the devil, but demons can cause symptoms of physical as well as mental illness. But in every case where the demons confronted Jesus, uh, they lost their power. And so we understand by that that God limits what evil spirits can do and that they can do nothing without his permission. So during Jesus' life on earth, the demons were allowed to be very active in order to demonstrate once and for all Christ's power and authority over them. Uh, the evil spirit possessing the man in the synagogue knew at once that Jesus was, you know, quote, the Holy One of God. But his confession was not a matter of faith, but of fear. Like it says in James 2.19, even the demons believe and tremble. But by including this event in his gospel, Mark is establishing Jesus' identity, showing that even demonic spirits recognize him as divine. And that's no nonsense. Now, a little earlier, we talked about the, uh, the latest group of newly professed religious here in the United States. And uh, those who, have called, uh, who uh, are called to the religious life are called to embrace what's uh, known as the evangelical councils, right? Vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience that are recommended by the gospel, hence evangelical, and considered to be a deeper level of commitment and discipleship in following Jesus Christ. The Catechism of the Catholic Church describes the evangelical councils in, in paragraphs 915 and 916. And in paragraph 915, it says, Christ proposes the evangelical councils in their great variety to every disciple. The perfection of charity to which all the faithful are called entails for those who freely follow the call of consecrated life the obligation of practicing chastity and celibacy for the kingdom as well as poverty and obedience. It is the profession of these councils within a permanent state of life recognized by the church that characterizes a life consecrated to God. So the evangelical councils are seen as a way for the religious to imitate Christ more closely and to detach themselves more perfectly from worldly possessions They are and, and attachments. They are voluntary commitments, perpetual vows, made by those who are called to dedicate their lives entirely to the service of God and, and neighbor. By embracing poverty, they renounce the desire for material wealth and possessions. By embracing obedience, they submit their will to the will of God and the authority of their superiors. And by embracing chastity, they renounce marriage and, and uh, sexual relations directing their love and devotion only to God and then to their neighbor for his sake. It's important to note that the evangelical councils are not required of all Christians, uh, but they are a special calling for those who are called to the consecrated religious life. So, and the councils are meant to help individuals grow and in holiness, live a life of selflessness, of service, following the example of Christ. Hence, those vows of poverty and chastity and obedience taken by those uh, called to the consecrated life uh, are a way for them to imitate Christ more closely, dedicate their life entirely to God and the service of others. Okay, so the second reading, uh, the epistle, the New Testament, New Testament reading from the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time has something to say 
about one of those evangelical councils. In fact, the most uh, controversial and countercultural of the religious vows, and namely celibacy. And it's taken from the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. And I'm reading, by the way, from the New Catholic translation of the Bible, New Catholic Bible. It is my wish that you be free of all anxieties. An unmarried man devotes himself to the Lord's affairs and is concerned as how he can please the Lord. However, a man who is married devotes himself to worldly matters as con- is concerned about how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. In the same way, an unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the affairs of the Lord and strives to be holy in both body and spirit, whereas the married woman is concerned about worldly matters and how she may please her husband. I'm speaking about this for your own good. I have no intention to impose any restraint upon you, but I wish you to be guided by a sense of propriety to devote yourself to the Lord free from distraction. Now recall that in Matthew 19, our Lord said, Not all can accept this word, but only those to whom it is granted. Some have renounced marriage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever can accept this ought to accept it. So celibacy is a calling. It's not a commandment. Although all Christians must practice the virtue of chastity according to their state in life. Now we're going to come back and hear what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say about celibacy in the consecrated and priestly life. That and much more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholics. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, talking about celibacy. Catechism of the Catholic Church discusses celibacy in the context of the priesthood and the consecrated life and highlights its value and purpose of celibacy as a gift and a sign of the kingdom of God. Paragraph 1579, uh, it says, Celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is a sign of this new life to the service of which the church's minister is consecrated. Accepted with a joyous heart, celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. Celibacy is, you know, it's considered a special form of consecration that priests willingly embrace for the sake of dedicating themselves to the service of God and his people. And it's seen as a sign of their commitment to the kingdom of heaven and a way to imitate Christ, who himself lived a celibate life. Paragraph 1579 goes on to say, All the ordained ministers of the Latin Church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that's an allusion to Matthew 19. In the Latin Church, that includes the the majority of Catholic priests uh, and religious uh, are chosen from among those who willingly embrace celibacy. The choice is made with the intention of dedicating themselves entirely to the service of the kingdom and is considered a joyful and radiant radiant sign of their consecration and commitment to the service of God. Celibacy, it's a visible witness to the reality of the kingdom, and that means proclaiming its presence. Now, somebody might ask, well, will the church ever have married priests? Will they ever allow married priests? And the answer to that question is, she already does. (laughs) Um, 
for many centuries, the Latin Church has found it best to follow our Lord's example. I mean, since the ninth century, celibacy in the priesthood has been mandatory. But that's a decision of the Church. Uh, it was a council of Christ, uh, not a command. But it's in the Latin Church, they have decided we're going to follow his example because, you know, that's what he said to do. And, and that, that seems to be what's best. But it wasn't always so. Um, important to remember, celibacy is uh, not a doctrine or a dogma of the church. It's a discipline and a tradition within the Latin church. And I say Latin because it remains a custom among, for example, the Eastern Orthodox Church for some of their priests to be married men. <clears throat> Pardon me. Also, uh, Anglican priests. We can have married uh, uh, priests in the Eastern Catholic rites now as well. Pope Francis did that. And Pope Benedict, or no, look, Anglican priests, rather, who are married and convert to Catholicism uh, on a case-by-case basis may be ordained Catholic priests while remaining married. Uh, but, but the Church upholds the values and the gift of celibacy as a way for priests to dedicate themselves fully to their ministry and especially to imitate Christ's own self-giving love. All right, um, so to, to close out the show, and I have way more uh, prepared here than I'm ever going to be able to share, <clears throat> so I'm going to tr- try and uh, carefully uh, edit as we go, but I want to talk about Bernard of Clairvaux. You, you know, if you listen to this program, he's my favorite medieval saint, his doctor of the church, who is known as the last of the fathers. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI pointed out that in the face of the complex dialectical reasoning and theology of his time, Bernard insists that Jesus alone is mel in ore in aure melos in corde jubilum, that is, honey in the mouth, song to the ear, jubilation in the heart. He goes on, the title Dr. Mellifluous, attributed to Bernard by tradition, stems precisely from this. Indeed, his praise of Jesus Christ flowed like honey. That's what mellifluous means. Now, amongst the doctors of the church, uh, Bernard also merited the title of Marian Doctor because of his great love and filial devotion to the Mother of God, and especially because he desired to enkindle a love for the Blessed Virgin Mary in virtually everyone he encountered. Now, I share this devotion to Our Lady, and I can say without hesitation that without her powerful intercession, I would not be Catholic today. It was the Holy Spirit uh, overflowing from the Blessed Virgin, as, as Bernard would say, by whom I was granted the grace of conversion. And this, I believe, is the main reason that I'm drawn to the spirituality of Bernard of Clairvaux. You see, our, <coughs> pardon me, Our Lady didn't so much feature in Bernard's writing and teaching as it just permeated his entire ministry and really his entire life. Now, even when he doesn't specifically mention her, Mary is always present because in his many letters to prominent people uh, who asked for his counsel or in the powerful sermons that he delivered to his Cistercian brothers, whenever he exhorts them to silence or humility or purity of heart or filial obedience, uh, these are not only virtues that dwell abundantly in our Blessed Lady, but according to Bernard, they are all dispensed by her. He invested so much in her powerful intercession that he said, quote, God has deigned that we obtain nothing except through the hands of Mary. 
He said, Mary is our mediatrix and we receive the Holy Spirit that overflows from her. Hence the doctrine that Mary is mediatrix of all graces. You know, his writings were so influential, so esteemed by the church that they were incorporated into the sacred liturgy, especially the liturgy of the hours. St. Bernard also composed many hymns and prayers to Our Lady, including the Ave Maris Stella, that's Hail Star of the Sea, the Memorare, right? Remember, O Most Gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known, etc. One of my favorite uh, medieval songs, Daily, Daily Sing to Mary, a song that's still sung in Catholic churches today. That was composed by Bernard, along with many others. And some folks also suppose that he composed the Salve Regina, although that's he didn't. Uh, that's the Hail Holy Queen. He did, however, add to it. Uh, the prayer, the Salve Regina, was composed around the time that Bernard was born, during the First Crusade. Um, and it was actually written by Bishop Adamar, who was the papal legate of the First Crusade. But when St. Bernard first heard the hymn, he was so moved by it that he dropped to his knees and beat his breast three times and said, O Clemens, O Pia, O Dulcis Virgo Maria, O Clement, O Loving, O Sweet Virgin Mary. And such was his influence that uh, that, that story spread and his spontaneous declaration actually just became a permanent part of the prayer. Uh, so... It was also his idea to end the church's liturgical day, that is the final hour of, of the divine office, uh, Compline, the uh, divine office, the liturgy of the hours, with the Salve Regina. And that practice led to concluding the Holy Rosary the same way. In, in one of his homilies, St. Bernard said of Our Lady, in you and for you and from you, the kindly hand of the Almighty recreates everything that he has created. This is why Bernard contemplates Mary, uh, to discover how to accept God's restoration, to become, as St. Paul says, a new creation. It is through his most eloquent praises of the Virgin Mary that Bernard reveals the mystery of God and of man, and the mystery of the fiat of Our Lady, which enabled the restoration of the relationship between God and man that was broken in the Garden of Eden. It all depended on Mary's affirmation be it done unto me according to thy word. Because of her fiat, the same Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary at the Incarnation overflows from her to enter the Christian soul and fill us with the indwelling presence of God. According to Pope Benedict XVI, for Bernard, true knowledge of God consists in a personal, profound experience of Jesus Christ and of his love. And dear brothers and sisters, this is true for every Christian. Faith is first and foremost a personal, intimate encounter with Jesus. It is having an experience of his closeness, his friendship, and his love. It is in this way that we learn to know him ever better, to love him, and to follow him more and more. In other words, it is through a personal relationship with Jesus that we know, love, and serve God. Uh, for Bernard, there's a, a figure of Mary that helps us make our own fiat to God, and that's the Virgin as guiding star. His hymn, Ave Maris Stella, Hail Star of the Sea, was a particular favorite of those who chanted the, the divine office. They chanted that as part of the divine office in the Middle Ages. And is still sung today in the Liturgy of the Hours and the Little Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
which is what the um, uh, the sisters at the content, Convent of the Immaculate Conception uh, pray the little office of the, of the Immaculate Conception every day. Uh, for Bernard, Mary is the star of the sea, the guide of every man, the guide for all Christian history, because she's the perfect example of humanity. She is, as Bishop Seen says, mankind's solitary boast. She's the one uh, perfect person who was merely a human person and not a divine person. Uh, Vatican II picked up that theme in Lumen Gentium, proclaiming Mary to be the model Christian and the model of the Church. So we're not alone in our quest for God. We're not abandoned to the uncertainty of the stormy sea, for we have a guiding star in heaven, our Blessed Mother. St. Bernard said, Whoever you are that perceive yourself during this mortal existence to be drifting in treacherous waters at the mercy of the winds and the waves rather than walking on firm ground, turn not away your eyes from the splendor of this guiding star unless, unless you wish to be submerged by the storm. Look at the star. Call upon Mary. With her for your guide, you shall not go astray. While invoking her, you shall never lose heart. If she walks before you, you shall not go weary. If she shows you favor, you shall reach the goal. The goal is Jesus. And Benedict XVI said, Bernard had no doubts. Per Mariam ad Jesum, through Mary, we are led to Jesus. You know, there needs to be a balance between action and contemplation in life. And Bernard said that action and contemplation are very close companions. Uh, and he invokes our Lord's words to, to Martha and Mary. Uh, you know, he says Martha and Mary, the, you know, the action and contemplation live together in the same house uh, under the same roof. Martha and Mary are sisters. And and he says that, that you know, the, the, he taught no matter what your state in life or vocation, and that includes those who govern the church, an imbalance between prayer and activity is a real and present danger. He said too many occupations often lead to hardness of heart. They are suffering for the spirit, loss of intelligence, and dispersion of grace. Uh, I'll give a last word to Bernard himself. He said, in danger, in distress, in uncertainty, think of Mary, call upon Mary, so that you may obtain the help of her prayers. Never forget the example of her life. If you follow her, you cannot falter. If you pray to her, you cannot despair. If you think of her, you cannot err. If she sustains you, you will not stumble. If she protects you, you have nothing to fear. If she guides you, you will never flag. If she's favorable to you, you will attain your goal. Our Lady promised that there'll be a great restoration in the church, not the end of the world. So we wait for that coming restoration like the second coming of our Lord in joyful hope. And that's no nonsense. <laughs>